Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. My first guest today was the 29th U.S. Secretary of Commerce under President George Herbert Walker Bush, emphasizing on market opening initiatives in China, Russia, Japan, and Mexico. She has served five presidents and in 2017 was named by Time Magazine as one of the 50 women who made American political history. And that's evident in our interview and the time in which I spent with her. Wow, was it exciting. Barbara Franklin is the president and CEO of Barbara Franklin Enterprises, a private consulting firm in Washington, D.C., and the subject of a book, A Matter of Simple Justice, The Untold Story of Barbara Hackman Franklin and a Few Good Women. Barbara, welcome to All Business. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Delighted to see you. Can you believe that this here's this Democrat from George McGovern and Tom Daschle uh, of fame? I used to work with them speaking to this Republican across the aisle. Yes, this is what's supposed to happen. (laughs) We've somehow (laughs) lost a bit of this over the years, but let's just hope we can bring it back because this is how things get done and problems get solved. Decisions get made. It's, It's a bipartisan thing. And, uh, so you and I are helping the cause right here today, hopefully. Exactly. Our, our, our goal isn't to always agree, but to understand. And that's okay. We don't have to agree on everything, but we can understand. You know, I can remember the days of Tip O'Neill when walking across the aisle and talking to you know, the Republican leader at the time from Texas um, and having those kinds of conversations. Or Robert Byrd in the United States Senate walking over and talking to the leading Republican. You know, back when I was interning in the U.S. Senate, way, way back. Um, it's amazing to be able to see that. Hey, let's talk about your book for a second, because I want to make sure we get that out there. Great book, A Matter of Simple Justice. Uh, you explored the Nixon administration's groundbreaking efforts to expand the role of women and the long-term significant advantages advances for women in the American workplace. So what can today's female leaders learn from your important work back in the White House? Let me first thank you for mentioning the book. I have a copy of it right here. Imagine that. Hey, there you go. (laughs) Uh, I I want to correct one thing, though. I didn't write this book. Lee Stout wrote the book. Uh, Penn State Press published it. Lee is the retired archivist. But it is a story that has to do with my my work there and that of a bunch of, of other people and highlights a number of the women who were appointed and a lot of breakthroughs were made. Women put in positions they had never held before and they were successful. So then it's very much easier the next time around to bring more women in. What, what could we learn or what I have, what have I learned from it? The effort was successful, I believe because well, first of all, the president wanted it. It does help when the president wants something. And there were objectives. Uh, I was told double the numbers of women in the top jobs in a year. Well, actually, we did it in about six months. So there were objectives. And down the line, there were objectives as well. And then there were action plans that went with the objectives. And then there was monitoring of how everybody was doing, each cabinet department, toward those objectives. And then there were, was a reward at the end of it. Now, in this case, the reward was a note from the president that said, 
good job or another note that's not such a good job. And I know that because I was drafting those notes and sending them upstairs. But that's why it worked, I believe. It was a managerial effort. At a time in our country when not everyone thought that careers for women such a good idea. And I do think some, some changes in our society emanated from this too. And some new opportunities opened all over the place because a president did this. And of course the women's movement gets credit too. The women's movement was out yeah. there making a lot of, of good noise. But I think all of that put together was what, uh, what, was what caused the change and the advances for women. And I have to say, I'm proud of having had a role in it. At the time, I didn't realize how important it, it looks now as we look back on it almost 50 years later. And of course, this this uh, next month, we're going to be celebrating, well, excuse me, in August, we're going to be celebrating the 19th uh, Amendment, the ratification, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. And I found out about that through your publicist, which I want to thank them very much for doing that, because I, I that's probably something I would have glossed over and not have remembered. And it's important for us to remember it, isn't it? Well, it, it really is. And thank you for bringing it up. And actually, across the top of the book, it says celebrating 100 years of women's suffrage. This was to be the year, the 100th anniversary that we were to be celebrating all year, the 19th Amendment, which was momentous, really, when you think about that, giving women the right to vote. But somehow, the, we've been overwhelmed by several crises and the the celebration of, of this event and women is kind of getting lost here. And so thank you for bringing it up. I do think it's something our society should know and should should honor. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love the I love things like that. I love one personally history, but second, that does the right thing, which is the most important piece of it. Hey, so I, I I'm always it's always an interesting thing. Republicans don't get credit for advances in, 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 in civil rights, advances for anti-discrimination, advances for pushing women. It would not be the platform of which I would think that I would go, hey, way to go, Bush, way to go, Nixon, way to go, Ford. But in this case, you did. How does that make you feel when you hear that? Well, for some reason, <laughs> that uh, what Republicans have done, and, and frankly, advancing women is the right thing to do, and it's, it's bipartisan. But yeah. frankly, what Republicans have done seems to get lost also. The first woman member of Congress was a Republican. It was Jeanette Rankin from Montana back in the 1916s, even before suffrage. But Montana let women vote. And really, I think the record that we compiled there in the 70s is quite a proud record too. And that just, I think it got overwhelmed by Watergate, by the opening to China and other things that, that happened. But I, I, I can't explain why, why this is, but I know that there have been a number of Republican advances and I'm proud of, of that. But somehow, uh, maybe we haven't told the story well. I, I, I don't know. But anyway. Well, we should. You should get credit for it. So speaking of getting credit, let's take a quick break and I'll be right back after this message. C-Suite Radio. Hey, we are back and live casting on LinkedIn and Facebook as we bring you all business with Jeffrey Hazlett. I am, of course, talking to Barbara Franklin, president and CEO of Barbara Franklin 
uh, enterprise out of Washington, D.C., but the former U.S. Uh, Commerce Secretary. So, And we're talking about uh, the most recent book about her, which is a matter of simple justice. And and what a great a great book it is, and a great uh, to be able to highlight. Who are some of the other women that are highlighted in the book? Well, I'm not sure you can see this, but I'm holding it up anyway. That's the cover. And on the cover of the book, is an assemblage of as many as we could find of top level appointees in April of 1972 in wow. the White House Rose Garden. Actually, I'm in this photograph, but you probably can't pick me out. You, yeah. You've got to notice the big hair and the clothes. You know, this is a. <laughs> you've, yeah, you've changed that hair. You've changed that hairdo from back then. That's good. Yeah, the hair is a little different. Um, well, some of the ones that are right on this. Uh, Cover, I can point out to you, uh, Helen Delich Bentley was the first woman chairman of the Federal Maritime Commission. And actually, she was, I didn't recruit her. She wow. was there, not there. Uh, Major General Jean Holm, actually that came out of DOD, but that was because of the push we, we placed on that. The first general woman in the, uh, the Air Force. Uh, wow. One who is not on here, I wish she were, was that I did recruit Dixie Lee Ray, who became the chairman of the old Atomic Energy Commission. That was definitely a first. And then she became the governor of the state of Washington. Uh, Marina Whitman became, was the first woman on the Council of Economic Advisors uh, in the White House. Uh, Carla Hills came to the Justice Department uh, as an, an associate AG, and then later became a cabinet secretary under Ford. Uh, Gloria Toot over here, uh, we had some diversity in this, I want you to notice. Gloria Toot, uh, Dr. Gloria Toot from New York, was uh, an assistant secretary of HUD. And a lot of the others, names you probably wouldn't recognize, but they were in jobs. The majority were in jobs that women had never held. That was the real significance of it. Yeah, without question. Why Why would <laughs> it just boggles my mind? Because I'm a, I think I'm a fair person. I think I'm a person who says, look, we should reflect the population of the people that we serve, you know? Right. So it should look like the colors of the people we serve. It should look like the people we serve, be they gay, be they, be they women, be they left-handed, right-handed, whatever. I, and it doesn't make a difference to me, black, brown, all, all of that. Why do you think it, it just took so long? Uh, I, I can't answer that. I do know that these breaks, I believe, given my own experience, um, being a, a, a woman out of Harvard Business School in the 60s, when nobody knew what to do with a woman MBA either. <laughs> right, right. I, I don't know. I, I just think times have, have changed. And back then, um, there wasn't the focus on diversity that yeah. there is today. And I'm, I'm delighted that we had we did focus some on diversity. And, and that's the way it should be, diversity of all kinds, not just uh, gender and color and ethnicity, but gender of uh, experiences, diversity of experiences. Uh, why it, it takes so long to make changes in our society, I don't know. And yet, having said that, look at the change that I think has just happened here. Yeah. Uh, epiphany about racial justice over the last, what? Uh, it's, it's weeks. So sometimes things happen, I think, very much quickly, more quickly. I don't know why that is. I don't know what, why that what, 
Let's think back, though, to, to that time period. You know, um, I was fairly young at that time period, of course, but I worked for George McGovern years ago. But I worked for him in the Senate uh, in the late 70s, not the early 70s when he ran. What do you think was the catalyst? And I'm surprised that Nixon was that that champion, quite frankly. It, it just blows my mind that he was the champion for that, because that's not what I would have thought. And yet you just went through first of this, first general, first uh, economic uh, committee, but first this, first. Why do you think he was the catalyst? Was it, was, was it the political times or was there something else? I think it was two things. And we've talked about this uh, a lot. Uh, first of all, I think there were some women who were very influential in his life that we really did not know about. We're starting to know now. His mother was one, and she had a college education at a time when that really was not the norm. Okay, he had yeah. a Pat Nixon, if you know anything about her, was a self-made woman who got herself educated, earned her own keep and then got herself to New York. Uh, in fact, I think her, her self-madeness was one of the things that, that, that he attract, was attracted to about her. And then he had two daughters. So there uh, yeah. was that. And I think there was more pillow talk from Pat Nixon than we will ever know. And one of the oral histories we have that is cited in this book from Pat's daughter, Julie, has in effect said that, that Pat uh, talked to, to her husband about the Supreme Court when there were vacancies. So I think there was there was that. Um, and I also think the women's movement out here was making noise. And it wasn't just Democratic women. It was all kinds of women, Republicans. And I think it was a combination of things. But what I believe he did was ahead of his time. And, and you're right. No one ever expected him to do that. And we're kind of surprised. Even now, I get that. Really? Did he do that? Well, he did. I was there. <laughs> I saw it. I saw the interest in it. And I, but I think it was a combination of, of, uh, of things. And I believe some of these breakthroughs and barriers dropping would have happened. But I do not believe they would have happened then in the early 70s. I think it would have taken a little bit longer. And I think I, it's interesting. You mentioned his daughters. I, that's the first thing I thought of was his daughters, because his daughters were coming of age at that time during a very political upheaval in our system about equality, the National Organization of Women, all the right. things that came up. Even on the Republican side, you had different women's rights, you know, Phyllis Shafley, many others who also contributed. But I bet you the daughters, because my daughters of that of that age as well. And all this, you know, Black Lives Matter, everything, she's about to marry someone of color. And so we're in those conversations all the time. And let me tell you, that frames my conversation without question. Yeah, I can, I can identify with that. I believe, I totally believe you. Well, I think his daughters had an impact as well, both of them. And Julie in particular was speaking out and she yeah. was in her 20s, I don't know, early 20s, maybe. Early then. 20s, yeah. He was talking about the work that we were doing to advance women in the federal government. And, you know, I, I give her credit for doing that then, and I think she's continued to, to do it since. The other thing I should mention about the, that, that happened back then in this whole effort was in the mid-levels of government, jobs that had never been open to women, all of a sudden we had women, FBI agents and forest rangers and tugboat captains, and some of those non-traditional jobs opened up too. And once they open up and women 
get them and do well in them, then, you know, then it's open season. I love it. That's <laughs> I, fantastic. I love when these things happen that way. And they should happen. And it's only right. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back after this. C-Suite Radio. Hey, we are back. This is Jeffrey Hazlett, and we are live on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on C-Suite Radio, the world's largest business podcast network, and we're live casting on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you all for joining us and watching us either during the live cast or later on as we are broadcasting this, of course, laid down to videotape. And of course, uh, I say videotape, it's all digital. No videotape anymore. What am I talking about? This is all digital. We're digital now. This is what happens, you know? You know, from my days at Bloomberg now, we're doing this all live on, and that's how we got started, by the way, everybody, just listen in right now. One day I had more people watching me online than were watching through broadcast. And I said, what are we doing this broadcast thing? We could go live. We could do it from my home. I could do it from anywhere. And of course, that's how it got started. Now we got C-Suite, C-Suite Radio, C-Suite TV, C-Suite Book Club, C-Suite everything. So we're talking live with Barbara Franklin, former U.S. Uh, Secretary of Commerce and has worked for five different presidents. And of course, we're getting, oh, wow, we're getting a PhD in women's history in business and politics right now. It's awesome. It's awesome. What advice do you have, Barbara? You know, we talked about a little bit, just touched on this Black Lives Matter with the discriminatory kinds of things that we're seeing, blatant discrimination, blatant racism uh, that's been playing out before our eyes. And now I'm starting to hear all these stories of all these Black executives who have been pulled over, been handcuffed, been, you know, and we're talking about executives. We're not talking about someone who's actually committing crimes, doing something, but the color of their skin. What advice do you have for them today in the, with the work that you did and getting women to the place that they are today? All right. And still a lot more needs to be done without question, but you had so many first, what advice do you have for them to be able to, to put this to the forefront and make some changes? Well, I think the same, uh, the same process can apply, and that would be to have a plan, decide what you're going to do, set some objectives, some targets, have action plans, say, okay, this is how we're going to get from here to there, and then monitor progress, and then reward people who do well, and just keep at it. I think change of this kind that we're talking about, whether it's people of color, whether it's been women, it's the same kind of process. And sometimes it takes a lot of time and patience, but that's what it takes. But you have to keep at it, but you have to have a plan. You have to have a yeah. plan. Well, and publish it. I like that. I, we, we came out when Black Lives Matter, you have to publish the numbers. You have to tell me members that you have that you're putting on stage. And are you representative of the of the community you serve. I, I think you need the optics on that. You can't just say it. You can't just say, oh, we'll put qualified people. That's bullshit. Excuse my language. You got to go do it. Well, and you, you're right. Be transparent about it. Put the numbers out there. That's what happened in this chapter I'm talking about. The numbers were out there. Today, those numbers look puny, but back then it was a big deal. And then you can see progress when you see numbers. No, I'm for that. And I'm for transparency. And I'm for just uh, having a plan targets, steady as she goes, implement it, and then be out there with it. And, and Get her out. done. It, it can't be a once and done kind of a thing. It takes some patience. Sometimes you have to hand the baton to somebody else and say, look, I did my bit. Now you, you carry the torch a little bit further. 
It has to be multi-generational, which I I think you point, you know, and what a great picture to be able to see all those first right there. Because typically I've seen a picture like that in the White House back in in any day. And quite frankly, even some days today, most of those women would have been secretaries. And that's in this case, you were secretary, secretary of commerce. (laughs) Secretary, I like that guy. But back in in those days, yes, women were mostly uh, secretaries, teachers, nurses. There were not that many who were in other uh, realms. And uh, but what what I'm so pleased about is that the opportunities now for women have expanded just uh, geometrically, exponentially all over the place. And women also today have more ability to chart their own courses in terms of how they balance their lives without, I meaning careers, families, elder parents, I don't know what it is, without having an expectation or a stereotype laid on them by our society. That's changed. And that's really the good of the order. One last question before we go. The Equal Rights Amendment was approved by Congress back during your time in the White House. Yes. What will it take to get it ratified, and how did those advancements help shape the national debate over the role of women in society? How well, important was it? The ERA did pass the Congress. Um, President Nixon was in favor of it, had been, and he signed it. And then it went out for ratification yep. with, with a timetable, <laughs> and it never got there by, right. I think, Timetable was 60, 79, and not enough states, it needed 38, not enough states got there, and then the timetable was extended by the Congress to 82. Now that's run out, but there are folks still working on getting the ERA around. Of course, Virginia, I think, was the latest state to do that, but some states have revoked their ratification. I think it's getting to be a complex legal constitutional question, but it's an important one. And in the interim, and I'm for it, I'm still for it, in the interim, some states have passed the equivalent of uh, of an equal rights amendment. I think it was in the mix of the push for equality during that time frame in the early 70s that I do believe was enabled by both the women's movement and by President Nixon's actions. Wow. That's a that's a that's a broad statement, a good statement. I love it. I love I appreciate that. Good. Barbara, what a pleasure to have you. We got to we have to have you back. We have to do something special for the 100th on the for the 19th on the 18th of August. Everybody write that down. Remember what that is. It's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment Women's Right to Vote on the 18th of August. Don't forget about it. My, my new friend, Barbara Franklin's the one that kind of educated me on that. I'm glad she did because I am not going to let that day pass. You know, I think it's going to be a great day. Thank you. You're great. It is a good day. That was the day of ratification. So thank you so much for mentioning all of that. We're going to sell Well, a pleasure. Barbara Franklin, former uh, U.S. Secretary of Commerce, uh, worked with five different presidents. Make sure you check out the book that she is highlighted in without question. I'm telling you, she's one of the 50 women who made American political history. Without question, she helped do that and she helped shape this country and we're better for it. Thank you so much for joining us on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. What a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, at the end of every show, I'd like to talk about what I learned. Before I get to my learning with Barbara, I got a great guest with Kimberly Rush coming up and talking about coaching and talking about how to go big and how to transform from where you're at into where you want to go. 
And it's going to be a great interview. You're going to listen to that. So tune in right after this. But with Barbara, wow, what an exciting discussion to get the history and to see all that played out. And I learn a lot in these interviews. Um, You know, I didn't know that a lot of that happened under Nixon. Who would have known? Who would have thought? And Republicans, I'm, I'm not knocking Republicans, but I'm sitting here saying, hey, I wouldn't have thought they would have gotten the kind of like the kudos for that. But nonetheless, here's what I learned. I learned you got to measure stuff. <laughs> you got you to put a stake in the ground, kind of like those dog soldiers of old, you know, you got to put a, a stake in the ground and never retreat off of it and then keep measuring it and measuring it and disclosing it. Numbers are the numbers and nothing wrong with that. And even if you don't hit them, at least you're trying and I think that was good. And I thought that was what I learned the most. And uh, that's one of the things we're doing right here in the C-Suite Network uh, with all about Black Lives Matter. We're going to start publishing numbers. That's what we have to start to do. First, we got to start keeping track of the numbers. Aha, that's what I learned right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Don't forget, help my numbers, okay? Tell your friends all about All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett right here on C-Suite Radio. How do you elevate your skills to become an all-star? My next guest is dedicated to inspiring and empowering C-level executives to think big in order to discover their most authentic leadership. Kimberly Roush is the founder of All-Star Executive Coaching, which specializes coaching in C-suite and VP-level executives from Fortune 100 companies to solo entrepreneurs. Man, she had a long history in a big firm, and she had left that, and she started her own coaching. She's now the co-author of What Are You When You Are Big? Kimberly, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, absolutely. You, you Tell me a little bit of your career. You you were at one of the big firms. You were at one of the big, big kahunas there, right? I was. I was. Yeah. I was a... National partner at KPMG. I spent 22 years in that in that life, if you will. <laughs> and down That's a long time. Field. That's a long time. It is. I it mean, is. 22 years at any company. You know, I think about my father was in the military and he was there for 17 years and then he retired and then went on to work for some contractors before he yeah. kind of really retired. But 22 years, long time in one place. Yeah, I actually worked for two companies. I started with Coopers and Librand and then I married uh, a partner. So I switched firms. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you couldn't you you couldn't work in the same place, right? We actually could, but you know, I mean, technically it was allowed, but there's an awful lot of unconscious bias that you know there were a lot of people who grew up at a time when nepotism was was not appropriate and was against the rules, and yeah. you know, I remember when I left, I got these hearty congratulations, and it was like oh, you're going to do great over there. And they never say that when you're going to a competitor, right? You know, but you're going to do great over there and you won't have to worry about Steve. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, duh, how did I not see that? (laughs) Exactly. That's something. So let me ask you a question. How do you inspire and empower others to become all-stars? And what's really, when we say all-stars, what's an all-star and what does that transformation kind of look like? How's that? Well, it's, it's, it's really funny. So, my, the name of my company, All Star Executive Coaching, definitely comes from the Smash Mouth song um, called Hey Now, You're an All Star, Get Your Game On, Go Play, yeah. right? Because I found cool. that when I was at my best, I was playing, I was having fun, I was, it, there wasn't really work about it, you know? Um, and to me, it's all about getting people in their most empowered state of mind, their most resourceful state of mind, you know? Because when you're in that state of mind, everything's easy and effortless. You're having fun. And I believe that, um, you know, professional excellence, 
fun and fulfillment is the key to success. To me, that's the triple play of all-star success because you can be professionally excellent, but if you're not having fun and you're not fulfilled, you're not going to have a lot of followers as a leader. Yeah. Without question. I think it has to be in work and in life. I like that aspect of, you know, I always tell people about like public speaking, professional speaking, which I do, you know, 150, 60 a year and or have been up until COVID, but now I'm doing them online, but you know, and you get paid for it. And I always tell people, but I'd probably do it for free. And everybody goes like, (laughs) you're crazy. I go, no, I just, I like it so much. Right. I mean, that's the way work is for me. I I go to bed every night, hoping I'll hurry up and sleep so I can get started early (laughs) the next day. You know, do you feel like that? Well, I kind of like my sleep more than you, perhaps. (laughs) Okay. Well, there you go. No, but I do feel that way about my work for sure. Yeah. So talk to me about going from like a pretty, you had a pretty big transformation. I had that too, going from like, you know, the C-suite of of a big Fortune 100 company. You you were a big partner at KPMG to an executive coach. What was that like? So I got promoted into a national role at KPMG and it was the, the role was national partner in charge of having the IT auditors and the financial statement auditors play nice together. <laughs> oh, well that that's 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 gotta be right? fun. <laughs> and I was dealing with the number two and three people in the whole firm. And to be honest with you, I felt out of my league. I didn't feel mm-hmm. like a leader among the leaders of the firm. And I knew how to manage up and I knew how to communicate up, but influencing up was a different ballgame. And I was gonna have to influence people in the the highest levels of leadership to achieve what they put me in the role to do. And so I was feeling a little insecure, quite frankly. Was that, was that a confidence thing or what, I mean, what is it because you hadn't done it before or you didn't think you're, I'm I'm just asking, I'm not trying to get too personal, but I, I think there's a lot of breakthrough here for a lot of people. You know, what, what caused that? Definitely. I wasn't in my most resourceful state of mind, right? Like, and I think, you know, one of the number one things I help people with is self-esteem, right? And Mm self-esteem is who you value yourself to be over who you think you should be, right? So I was looking up at these people saying, I don't think like them and I'm not in their league. And, you know, I was able to flip those around to, of course, you don't think like them. That's why they called you to the table. That's why they created this position for you, right? Uh, and I'm not in their league became, yeah, and at this stage of that game, they weren't in that league either. Look who you get to hang with. What can you learn from these people? And it was a coach who helped me shift my mindset mm-hmm. um, and, and really step into the role. So you write a lot about big. Yeah, no, it's a change. It's a huge change for life about that. And I, I think that's what you have to do. You know, you get these little voices in your head, you have to stop listening to them, but you got to turn around to the positive side, right? Like you're not, not just worthy. positive, but powerful. Exactly. Which gets that gets to the word big. You use that a lot. And I wrote about that in my, my last or my third book, which is think big, act bigger. How did you discover the big concept and what does it really mean? So after working with my coach for a while, he helped me see that the part of my job I loved was all about coaching and developing and mentoring and particularly challenging and inspiring people. And that really came about because three months into my national role, the chairman of our firm was diagnosed with brain cancer. And three months later, he passed away. And my coach said to me, well, what's going on with your role? And I said, oh, I'm safe. I'll be in this role for at least another year. When I'm done with this, they'll give me some other great position, more title, more money. They always have. They always will. And he said, wow, (laughs) 
you know, why don't you look at the aspects of your job that get you out of bed in the morning, the things that have you energized and engaged, the things that have you, you know, staying there late at night, losing track of time and figure out what position within KPMG would allow you to do that the most. And then spend this next year positioning yourself for that. Look who you've got exposure to. And I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, and I just said, they will give me some great position because I never would have told you I was passive in my career ever. Mm. I always thought I was taking initiative. But what I realized is I was taking on all the roles that nobody else wanted <laughs> and it was oh. feeding my ego. Mm -hmm. um, but when he was asking me, where do I thrive? That was a completely different question. And I finally came to realize that I thrived when I was coaching and developing and mentoring and particularly challenging and inspiring people. So after, you know, taking a lot of coaching classes, practically becoming certified, coming up with a business plan, working with him all through that, I stepped out in 2007 and I started my own business. And that was my moment of truth. <laughs> I went from being, you know, national partner in a global firm with resources at my fingertips to becoming Kimberly Roush on yeah. one woman show. Yeah. No executive yeah. admin anymore. Yeah. I had to buy no IT, photocopy. No IT help. No IT help. No, yeah. right, right. You know, IT is like one of the, the, the my nemesis, right? Yeah, when I was a partner at KPMG, you know, I mean, you had an IT problem, they were in your office in 10 minutes. <laughs> It's you funny know. you say that. We just had Barbara Franklin, who was the former Secretary of Commerce, um, work for five different presidents and talk about power and the, all the things you can do. And then it reminded me, your comment just now reminded me of Jim Baker, former you know Secretary of State under Reagan. And I once asked him, I said, what's it like to go from power, one day you're in power to the next day you're out? Right. Right. And he goes, he goes, yeah, Jeff, one day I have a security team that's rushing me around in bullet, you know, bulletproof limousines to the next day. I'm in a cab with a guy who speaks Farsi. You know? Right. Right. And that's what it is for you to step out of that role. Same thing. And it then is. boom, it's, it's wide open. Yeah. And you go through identity theft practically, right? Because in America, mm -hmm. so much of who we are is our job title and the company we work for. Mm -hmm. And then I see folks in transition or myself, you know, at that moment when I stepped out, I was, I was going through identity theft. And so naturally I had a coaching session on it. And my coach said to me, excuse me, did you leave any part of Kimberly Roush at KPMG? And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, did you leave your strengths, your experience, your accomplishments, your, your personality, your, you know, anything? And I said, no. And he said, well, who are you when you're big? <laughs> mm, that's that cool. was the question. He doesn't even remember asking me it, but <laughs> for our next session, he made me write something out. And I really came to realize four things. And, and number one is that big is a state of mind in every moment of every day we have a choice to make and we can choose to feel small the same way, the same small I felt when I stepped into that national role, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. We can choose to feel small or we can simply step into being our most resourceful selves. And the more we step in, the easier it is to recognize when we've fallen out, the faster we can recover, the longer we stay there until we start living our lives from that place, you know? And he had me write something out and I've gone on to ask that question to over 3000 people and have them write big statements. And I've just seen the power of that question to transform. And it's, it's, it's kind of magical and super fun. And that's, that's where the book came from actually. Which is big. And speaking of big and writing stuff out, I want to go listen to something right now. And I want to listen to one of my advertisers. I'll be right back after this message. 
C-Suite Radio. Hey, we are back live on LinkedIn and Facebook as we're doing a live cast of All Business with Jeffrey Hazel right here on C-Suite Radio. Thanks for joining in. Hey, we're talking with Kimberly Roush, who's the founder and executive coach of All-Star Executive Coaching. And we were talking about how to be big, how to, how to live it inside. How do you manifest it every day? It, what's, what's interesting for me is I know that you're such a wonderful coach because you have hundreds and hundreds of people that go through your program. It, you're, you're one of our most elite thought leaders in the C-suite network, one of our most trusted advisors to the executive teams. And what's interesting is the coach has a coach. Of course. Well, I, I, a lot of people would find that that's what? Are you kidding me? But yeah, we all have coaches. We all have coaches of some kind that are coaching and leading us. Do you think we, we're not this pretty? We're not this smart, right? <laughs> I still have a coach. Yeah. I still have a coach. And, and I use the same coach. It was kind of funny. Last November, he said to me, so I've been working with you a quarter of your life. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> a quarter of my life? Like I had no idea this, this past 12 years has just flown by and I, I just pinch myself that this is what I get to do every day, but, but I wouldn't be as good at it without somebody to hold me accountable. Somebody for me to, you know, run my challenges by somebody to collaborate with it to a certain extent, you know? Um, and you know, we collaborated in writing the book, which was super fun. Um, he's my co-author and he just, yeah, we all need someone, right? I, it would almost be, I'm, I'm always leery of a coach that doesn't have a coach, right? Because mm. do you not believe in it enough? You know, do you not value it enough that you won't pay for it out of your own pocket? You know, because it was, it was a lot easier when KPMG was paying for it, right? <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. It's when you have to, when you have to pull the cash out of your own pocket or purse or wherever it might be, that's when you go like, whoa, okay. That makes you think twice. Right? It's a little scarier, right? But if you yeah. think about it, you are your greatest asset. Your income potential over the rest of your career is your greatest asset. It's probably bigger than anything else. And why wouldn't you invest in that? Yeah. You know? Well, uh, professional athletes all have coaches. Of course uh, they do. Olympic gold, gold medalists have coaches, right? They have multiple uh, coaches. Well, it to yeah, you might have a strength coach, an endurance coach, uh, I don't know, whatever kind of coaches those guys have. Mental I don't coach. know. Mental coach. There you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what's the biggest, what's the biggest mistake you think people make when they choose a coach? Hmm. Good question. Um, I think expecting that the coach is going to do the work for them. Mm -hmm. Right. And then picking a coach that you think, you know, has the ability to do it for you as opposed to the coach that's going to ask you the questions and challenge you enough like coaching is all about, I have to actually absolutely believe that you're naturally creative, resourceful and whole. There's just something getting in your way. If I can remove that, you have the, you either have all the answers already, or you have the ability to get all the answers. I just mm -hmm. got to remove whatever's stuck. I've got to get you back into that resourceful state of mind where you're believing in yourself and you're believing in your abilities and you know what you want, right? Yeah. Well, you push it down sometimes, you know, I've been in those situations many times where I thought, geez, somebody should do something about it or, or I don't know this. And then I realized, well, it doesn't make a difference whether I know or not. I got to do it. So let's do it. You know? So I guess I, I get through that a little bit. What do you like most about a coach? About a coach? About? Yeah. 
I mean, you, you've, been, you've been spending some good money for 25 years on a coach and then you're doing it yourself and doing it at, at a superb level. What do you like best about that? It, it's interesting. So I, I suppose, you know, I, I immediately went to what I like, what do I like most about coaching? But I suppose it's the same thing that I like about my coach. Right. Um, although I never really thought of it that way, but um I get to help people's magnificence emerge (laughs) and I get to see that and watch that and experience that. And, and that's what my coach has done with me to a certain extent, right. Or to a large extent, actually to a big extent. (laughs) It's, it's also interesting. I think, and, and see if you think this as well, you're talking to your coach about this big problem you're having and all of a sudden they just boom out of nowhere, pinpoint it. It's like, it's like you did a presentation and they're reading, or you wrote a book and there's one misspelled word in that book. And all of a sudden they open the book and turn right to that word, right? <laughs> it's amazing sometimes how they do that. And the, and it also, is it also amazing to you sometimes that you see this in other people and you can point it out quickly? Yeah, I think one of the things is, is that, you know, when you're coaching, you're looking in from the outside, you have a completely unbiased perspective, you know, like coaches can't judge, right? So we can't, we can't judge somebody as good or bad or right or wrong. It's just, they are where they are. And so we can look at something without having the lenses that they're looking through that cloud their vision, right? And so we can, we're, we're looking in with a completely independent perspective. And so we, we tend to see and hear more, you know, sometimes it's in the words they say, or it's in the the body language they've got, or they, you know, their, their energy. And you can just, you sense it and you just, you just get curious and, and call out what you're seeing or hearing. Um, and it's, it's almost like they have the aha most of the time rather than us right. providing it. Right. You know? Yeah. We don't have all those filters. So, and speaking of filters, I want to take my filter off and go take a break. I'll be right back after this message. C-Suite Radio. All right, we're back. And thank you very much for watching this live cast on Facebook and LinkedIn. And of course, listening to us right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hayes as we bring you C-Suite Radio. I've got Kimberly Roush, founder and executive coach of All Star Executive Coaching out in the Bay Area. But she is worldwide, former big partner, KPMG, now coach and doing a great job of it, coaching the C-Suite. Executives in the C-Suite, well, and entrepreneurs, everyone. If you got a business problem, a bit, you need a business breakthrough, that's what you do. You want to get better. You want to have a gold medal. You hire a coach. You want to win championships. You hire a coach. You want to get in shape. You hire a coach. And that's what you do in business. When you say people are resistant to change in order to get them to come on your journey with you, how do you turn uh, change into a positive experience? Because a lot of people, they don't like change. I love change. Well, I, I don't like changing my restaurants. I don't like changing my scotch, but I like change everywhere else. <laughs> Well, you know, those voices we were talking about, right? You know, I like to call one the whisper and one the gremlin, right? And the gremlin screams things we wouldn't say to our worst enemy. They're tricky. They're tricky bastards, those gremlins. Oh, my God. And he's got a megaphone, right? (laughs) And... And the gremlin just loves the status quo. It loves comfortable. Yeah. It loves, you know, staying where you are, even if staying where you are is stuck. Yeah. And so change very often invokes a threat response in people. Um, and that threat response actually makes us unresourceful. 
because literally we're, our, our brain still thinks we're running away from saber-toothed tigers. So all of our bodily resources are being fed to our major muscle groups so we can run faster. Our brains are getting starved of oxygen and glucose. We're producing cortisol, the stress hormone, and adrenaline so that we can run. Our peripheral vision shrinks so that we know where to put one foot in front of the other just to save our lives. And our brain doesn't really understand the difference between you know, changing a restaurant <laughs> and you know, feeling threatened in any sort of change and, and running away from that saber toothed tiger. And so when we're in a positive state of emotions, we can actually be creative and resourceful and innovative. And that's what coaching is all about is getting people into that resourceful state of mind. Um, but it isn't possible if a fear response or, or a has been evoked or, or negative emotions are present. And so very often it's like, okay, well, let's process those. Let's, 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 let's explore it. Let's get curious about it. Let's see what it's even saying to you. Right. And is it true? Is it fake? Is it most of the time it's fake, right? I don't think like them. Of course I thought like them, right. I'm not in their league. Of course I was in their league. Right. (laughs) So, you know, most of it's garbage that gremlin's saying, and we just got to clear that out. Gremlins, that was scary. That was that, it, change. Yeah, they're scary. They're scary. That was a scary movie. I remember that back in the 80s. Yeah. I remember Gremlins. Anyway, for those of you who haven't watched it, you got to watch it. And nothing good happens after dark. I just want to say that. Hey, what should, last question, what, what, what should an executive, and I know you help a lot of executives that are transitioning, right? Yeah. So what should an executive that transitioning do right now to make sure they land the job where they can really thrive? You know, I think it's to, you know, embrace the career coffee break <laughs> that they've probably wished they'd had for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, embrace transition as a positive experience, right? Calm down those, those negative voices and really look at it a little more objectively. Tap into the times in your career when you were thriving, when you were on your game, energized and engaged and, you know, the best of you was showing up and then sit back from those situations and say, what was meaningful about that to me? Why was I thriving? So this isn't about understanding your greatest sounding accomplishments that you think are going to impress somebody, but rather inwardly inwardly looking for your intrinsic motivators, right? The things that made work meaningful. And from that, stand back and say, okay, what was common about me in all these times that I was thriving? And when you step back and, and say what was common, that's really the you're, you're a marketing guy, right? That's the, the gist of your personal brand. I don't want your personal brand to be you at your mediocrity. Right. I want it to be you at your absolute best. Coke doesn't say it's sugar water. It says taste the feeling, right? <laughs> so do a little reflection and really understand what's meaningful about your work. What do you want to get back doing? And if you look at these situations where you were thriving, you also start to see the circumstances that allowed you to thrive whether it was the type of company or the type of boss or the type of role you were in or the type of um, environment that you were in or what you were able to get to do every day, you know, your strengths will probably appear in all of those. And then go market that. Go look for that because when you know what you're looking for, it's a lot easier to find it. Amen. Amen. I love what you said about network. You should have started your network and networking a long time ago. So if you're an executive, better listen to what she says. You should have started that long time. Next time to plant a tree, best next time was 20. Well, the best time was 20 years ago. Next time is right now. So you should be working on your network. Hey, Kimberly Roush. Thank you so much. I actually trademarked the term net playing, which is taking the work. What is that called? 
Say it again. Playing, taking the work out of networking. <laughs> oh, there you go. I like that. That's a good right. job. Hey, everybody, thanks so much. Kimberly, thank you for joining us. Founder, executive coach, all-star executive coaching, and, of course, a member of the C-Suite Network Thought Council. We are so glad to have you on All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. This was fun. At the end of every show, I like to talk about what I learned. Two things that I got from Kimberly. One was network, network, network. Best time to plant a tree. I said that was 20 years ago. Next time is today. Today, right now. So listen, folks, you should be a part of a network. Okay. I keep telling people that. That's what made my career. That's what made my business is the fact that I've been able to network like crazy. And you know, not just like gimme, 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 no, but give, 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 and really strengthen strengthen my relationships. And that's why I can pick up the phone and talk to so many people. And then last but not least, hey, you need a coach. Everybody needs a coach. Might be a mental health coach, might be a physical coach, might be a business coach, might be just a, you know, get be nicer coach, okay? Whatever it is, we all need coaches in our lives. We got them all around us. Just reach out and ask someone. That's what I learned right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on C-Suite Radio. Don't forget, tune in again and tell your friends. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.